0: This series contains adult language and descriptions of graphic violence throughout. Listener discretion is advised. Cavalry Audio. Welcome to the Murder Chronicles. I'm your host, Carolyn Osorio. You're listening to Episode 6, The Stalker. William of Ockham. Well, if you're not familiar, he was an English friar who was credited with the idea that the simplest explanation is usually the right one. His maxim is called Ockham's Razor. But let me tell you, I guarantee that William of Ockham had never met the likes of Liz Gollier.
1: All of the women that Liz tormented, were involved in some way with a man that Liz wanted. And that's why they became targets.
0: That's Leslie Rule. She's the author of the book, A Tangled Web. And I got to tell you, she's the perfect person to help me chronicle the bizarre and beyond tragic investigation of Liz Gollier. couple of reasons why. First, Leslie researched the heck out of this extremely complicated investigation that would take detectives thousands and thousands of hours from multiple jurisdictions to puzzle out. And secondly, Leslie is also the daughter of the author Anne Rule. Now, here in the Pacific Northwest, Anne Rule is the queen of true crime, which means she's learned a lot from her mom, and she also had a front row seat when even the queen herself, Miss Anne Rule, was duped By a sociopath.
1: I was a teenager in the 1970s and it was the hippie days. And my male friends mostly had long hair down to their shoulders. And my mom's friend, Ted Bundy, was conservative, uh, Republican. He was actually her co worker before he was her friend. And she thought he was just wonderful. And I thought it was ironic. That my mom, being overprotective, would worry about who my friends were and what my friends were doing when it turned out that her friend, Ted Bundy, was the most dangerous
0: one. And that's the thing about this case. When it came to Liz Gallier, few saw her as the diabolical and narcissistic killer that she truly is. They dismissed her small stature, underestimated her twisted tech skills, her raging jealousy, and her toxic manipulation and gaslighting. Often, it's the man who is the toxic manipulator in true crime stories, the aggressor, the stalker. But men are victims too. And this woman, Liz Gallier, she is like a hundred times more frightening than Glenn Close in Fatal Attraction. So hold on for the ride. I don't think you're going to be able to get this one out of your head anytime soon. Our story begins with a breakup. David Krupa and Amy Flora ended a 12-year relationship in the summer of 2012. They tried really hard to keep it together for their two children— But at the end of the day, both agreed it was time to throw in the towel. David had been with Amy since he was 22 years old. When they split, Amy and the kids stayed in Council Bluffs, Iowa. That's where they were living as a family. Meantime, Dave chose to relocate to Omaha, Nebraska, because it was close to the tire store that he managed. Now, geography plays a big role in this investigation. And even though Dave moved 20 minutes away from Council Bluffs, Iowa, his new apartment was in another state, Omaha, Nebraska. If you're already getting confused, I was at first, too. So here's Leslie to explain.
1: This made it somewhat confusing for detectives who were trying to solve the case because there were so many different jurisdictions involved and it took a while for them to coordinate because they were in different agencies. Eventually, they did. Uh, But it's also confusing for anybody trying to follow this case because you think two states are going to be far away from each other. But this was a case where they're they're right next to each other. So you see a lot of overlapping of um, incidents between the two states.
0: Life became really different for Dave. For one, he was a bachelor for the first time in over a decade. Of course, he saw his kids as much as he could during the work week, and he had a demanding job, but he was lonely. Dave was thirty four at the time, and he's been described as attractive in a sort of everyman kind of way, self effacing. He wasn't braggadocious. He didn't take himself too seriously. He was the kind of guy that most women felt comfortable around. Later, he would admit that when he signed up to the Plenty of Fish dating site, it was a real shock to the system. So much had changed since he was a 22-year-old single kid. He was excited as he perused hundreds of profiles looking for women to connect with, but he was a bit insecure about dating women again. But one thing he was very clear about, he wasn't interested in a long-term relationship. The first date Dave went on was with a woman named Liz Gollier. They met at a coffee shop, and Liz had shoulder-length black hair. Her stature was petite at 5'2". There was an instant attraction. They talked about their kids. Both of them had children around the same ages, and they were both busy with their jobs. Liz said she had a successful housekeeping business.
1: And they had a a good sex life, but he had just come out of a long-term relationship. So the last thing he wanted to do was to be tied down again. Liz said she understood that. She smiled and nodded and agreed with him that she didn't want to be tied down either. And she said that on their first date. Unfortunately, she wasn't being truthful because she got her claws into him and she wanted more than he was willing to give her.
0: Over the next two weeks, Liz and Dave saw each other regularly, and the sex was fantastic. But it wasn't enough to bridge Dave's craving for an intellectual connection. After the first few weeks, Dave was back cruising profiles on Plenty of Fish, scheduling more dates. On the nights Dave wasn't with Liz, she'd pester him about what he was up to. His response was always consistent and incredibly clear— basically none of your business. I told you I wasn't looking for a commitment. Liz would aggressively pursue Dave, but then also act like she was fine with his dating parameters when he'd push back. Their time together was centered around an easy companionship and casual sex. In Dave's mind, that was it. And that is all it would ever be. And he wasn't shy about telling Liz that. If she was okay with that arrangement, so was he. It didn't take long for a pattern to form. Liz lived close to Dave's apartment in a small house with her kids. When she knew Dave was home, she'd show up at his place unannounced, wanting sex. Often, these hookups were right before Dave was just about to go on a new date. As the weeks wore on, Liz began aggressively texting and emailing Dave about being exclusive, saying she only wanted to be with him. Dave was like, please, see other people. I've told you, I don't want a committed relationship. And the ironic thing is, is that Dave had no idea that Liz already had a committed relationship with a boyfriend who didn't know anything about Dave Krupa.
1: Liz had been in a relationship for the last couple of years with a really nice guy and he thought they were exclusive. Now, I think that she was more attracted to men when they were rejecting her. And if if a guy was really nice and loyal to Liz, she seemed to grow bored with them pretty quickly. But if a man was not willing to commit to her, she wanted him more.
0: Liz also grew extremely jealous of the amount of time that Dave was spending with his kids and his ex Amy. There was nothing between their relationship. The pair were trying hard to maintain a good friendship with each other for their kids. And this was something that Dave wasn't going to tolerate. Another pattern manifested itself during this early period of their dating. When Liz pressed too hard for Dave to commit, she would be seething with jealousy. He would just end it and they'd stop talking for a week or two. But then Liz would call Dave desperate for his help with some crisis in her life. And even though Dave wasn't interested in having a committed relationship with Liz or anyone, that didn't mean he wasn't a nice guy. As a single mom, he knew that Liz struggled with two kids on her own. If he could help, he would. Once he had helped with whatever crisis Liz was going through, she would initiate a sexual liaison. And of course, the relationship revved up again. Liz started sleeping over at Dave's throughout the week. Meantime, her boyfriend, the one who thought he was in a committed relationship with Liz, would watch her kids. Her excuse was that she had an overnight cleaning job. On the days that Liz wasn't with Dave, she would constantly text and email him about a commitment. Liz had convinced herself that Amy, Dave's ex, was to blame for his refusal to commit to her. Here's just one of the many, many emails Liz sent to Dave. She said, I always feel we take a small step forward, then you go to Amy, then we take 10 steps backward. Am I really always going to have to play this tug of war for you to drop the damn past? At the four month anniversary of their so called relationship, Liz took a new tack. She wanted Dave to commit to her exclusively for one month. Dave held his ground, but eventually caved between work, his friends, and just living life, it was easier to pacify Liz. And of course, there was the sex. How could Dave fathom that Liz was monitoring his Plenty of Fish account, looking for any woman that threatened her relationship with Dave? For example, Liz created a dating profile as a man on Plenty of Fish. She snagged the photo of just some random guy online, contacted a woman she wanted out of Dave's life, and created a relationship that lasted a year. Liz's ruse was so effective, she had no idea that she'd been catfished.
1: The woman that she catfished for over a year while pretending to be a man may have caught her attention because she probably was on one of Dave's social media sites. Uh, She might have liked the picture of his that he posted somewhere. So that's probably why she targeted that woman. But we don't know for sure. But that's what the detective told me. He figured that she was someone that had had reached out to Dave and Liz created the, the relationship to distract her from that.
0: Liz was becoming more and more brazen every day to control Dave via her online strategies, but the one thing that she couldn't try to control was who Dave met the old-fashioned way. You know, organically meeting someone in the real world? Carrie Farver brought her Ford Explorer into the tire and auto repair shop that Dave managed. She needed to get some work done on her SUV. From that very first encounter, the attraction between the two was undeniable. The whole deep eye contact for a second that has to be averted. The nervous, inadvertent, and unstoppable flirtatious smile. It was obvious to Dave and Carrie as they stood near each other that, on the surface, they were talking about the repairs to her SUV. But what was going on between them, underneath the surface, was intense. Dave wanted to ask Carrie out on a date right then and there, but being the manager, he knew he had to keep it professional. A couple of weeks later, Dave was cruising plenty of fish when he saw a profile pic that stopped him in his tracks. It was Carrie Farver. In his usual style, he sent a self-deprecating message. Hey, I'm not a creep, but hello. Carrie responded with a hello. Not too long after that exchange, Carrie was back at Dave's work. This time, he asked her out. And the timing couldn't be more perfect. His quasi-commitment to Liz, you know, that 30-day monogamy request, was nearly up. Liz and Dave had one more pre-planned date on the books. Liz had scored two tickets to a Halloween costume party at Harris Casino and Hotel. It was a big night for Liz, but Dave was just going through the motions. He had another woman on his mind, Carrie Farver. Carrie and Dave went out on their first date three days later. It was casual at an Applebee's restaurant that was near Dave's apartment. The chemistry between the two continued to soar as Carrie talked about her teenage son, Max. Dave enjoyed listening to Carrie's passion for her son and learning about her work as a computer programmer. In fact, her job was less than a mile away from his work. Dave talked about his kids, about his recent split from Amy, and Carrie shared that she'd been divorced twice. She wasn't looking for anything long-term, just a little fun in the space between her demanding job and family. (laughs) Of course, This was music to Dave's ears. And as their date progressed, his cell phone started blowing up. Within a 10-minute period, Liz had called and texted over 20 times. Dave politely excused himself and went to the restroom. He called Liz and was like, what's wrong? Frantically, Liz replied, I left some things at your apartment that I need to get. Dave tried to reason with Liz, saying he was on a date. He'd catch up with her later. I think you can imagine how that went. Liz had to have her t-shirts, toothbrush, and pots and pans right now. This time, Dave was not going to placate Liz. He basically said too bad, hung up, and hustled back to the table, where he and Carrie continued to chat. Not long after, he invited Carrie back to his apartment to hang out. Carrie was game. Her son was spending the night at her parents' house, so she was free to stay out late. Dave and Carrie had barely settled on his sofa when his... Security intercom inside of his apartment started buzzing, while at the same time, his phone began ringing. It was Liz. She was outside his apartment building. Dave excused himself again and went down to the lobby. Through the locked glass door, he saw a disheveled Liz. Her face, red, swollen, puffy from all the crying as she yelled, I need my stuff. How awkward it must have been. Dave doing the walk of shame back to the couch. I'm sure he was rehearsing what he would say to Carrie. He went with the truth, essentially saying, hey, I'm sorry, but a woman that I've been dating is outside hysterical and won't leave until she gets her stuff back. And easygoing Carrie took it like a champ. She was like, hey, we've all been there. Call me when you have it all worked out. As Dave and Carrie walked to the security door, Liz stood her ground as he opened the door. And as Carrie walked out... Liz walked in, neither woman acknowledging the other's existence. Inside Dave's apartment, Liz began collecting her things, but her heart really wasn't in it. Now that she was inside, alone with Dave, she wanted to have sex with him. This move had worked like a charm so many times before, but this time, Dave wasn't having it. He told her to get her stuff and go. After Liz left... Dave called Carrie. To his surprise, not only was she not upset, but she invited him over to her place. It was a 30-minute drive over the bridge to Macedonia, Iowa, but it was an invitation that Dave wasn't going to turn down. Would things have turned out differently if he had? What Dave didn't know as he drove to Carrie's was that Liz was secretly following him. More after a word from our sponsors. Carrie and her 14-year-old son, Max, lived in an adorable, historic home that had been in her family for generations. After Liz's constant nagging, manipulation, and jealousy, the easygoing, intelligent, beautiful Carrie Farver must have felt like a boon to Dave as he rejoined her for the night, and they continued to talk. I mean, their intense physical attraction had only grown stronger by an evening of emotional and intellectual connection that they'd shared over dinner. But again, Carrie reiterated that she wasn't looking for anything serious. In fact, her last relationship had ended badly. She'd had to get a restraining order against her boyfriend. The last thing she wanted in her life was more drama. Of course, Dave understood, he felt the same. And as they consummated their relationship, they had no idea that Liz was peering through Carrie's window in the darkness outside.
1: And she had to have known where Carrie lived because she followed Dave there. She was probably peeking in the windows.
0: The next two weeks were a joyous whirlwind. Dave and Carrie were busy with work and family, but they still found time to be together every other day. Meanwhile, Dave continued to be oblivious to Liz's dark obsession with him. He didn't know that she was closely monitoring his relationship with Carrie, that she was a toxic manipulator. She knew how to appear normal, a precursor to reeling Dave back in. Dave took Liz's apologetic message days after her jealous tantrum when she texted I hope we can still be friends I'm going to start seeing other people it was all bullshit of course another strategically timed email Liz said hey I forgot to grab one of my pans at your place this time Dave said he'd bring it over to Liz's house once there Dave would say that Liz was on him for sex looking back now I'm sure he wishes he would have just run for the door he still believed he was in control of his relationship with Liz As Dave left that day, he reasoned he wasn't in a committed relationship with Carrie and she wasn't committed to him. He justified the hookup. It hadn't changed anything. He didn't want to be with Liz and never would. He didn't realize he was playing a very dangerous game with Liz and that Carrie would pay the price.
1: Liz was jealous of every single female that Dave spent time with. And they were all targets. But Carrie was in an especially dangerous situation because it was obvious that Dave seemed to really like her.
0: On November 11th, 2012, Carrie and her son, Max, walked out their front door and were shocked when they saw that someone had spray painted all over Carrie's SUV and keyed a huge scratch along the side. Carrie would post a photo of the damage on Facebook that day, but she wasn't a worry wart. She used the opportunity to spend time with Max as they spent the day rubbing away the paint with WD-40. She just wasn't going to spend a bunch of time and negative energy worrying about it. She couldn't fathom who would do such a thing. She had no enemies. A couple of days later, on November 13th, it was a brutally cold morning in Omaha, Nebraska. But inside Dave Krupa's warm apartment, the once-jaded bachelor was softening. Carrie had spent the night... And they'd enjoyed each other's company. But Carrie was also taking advantage of the fact that his apartment was really close to her work. And so staying at Dave's apartment meant that she would skip the commute. She had arranged for Max to spend the night at his grandparents. Dave was an early riser. So at 6.30 that morning, he was off to work. And as he said goodbye to Carrie, as she sat on the sofa with her laptop, neither of them knew that it was the last time they would ever see each other again. If this story were a psychological thriller and you and I were sitting in a movie theater enjoying popcorn together, Liz Gallier would be presented in this movie as the victim of Carrie Farver. Because for the next three years, after Carrie's mysterious disappearance, Liz would pretend to be her. She pretended to be Carrie through texts, emails, and social media. But this is real life, not a Hitchcock flick. And the fact is that Liz murdered Carrie because of her lust for Dave Was so whacked out, she was willing to go to any length, including murdering Carrie Farver to have him. For the next three years, Liz would portray herself as the victim of Carrie, portraying Carrie as some crazy stalker when Carrie was an innocent victim of Liz, both in life and in death. Carrie Fulver
1: was a brilliant, beautiful woman who was very kind-hearted. She had many friends. She and her mom were very close and spoke every day. She had a teenage son and she was dedicated to him. She never missed any of his school events. She went to plays and to see him play in his various sports. She was always there for him. And she had close friends too. She had one friend. She was planning a baby shower for her first baby.
0: To this day, We still don't know how it happened. But on November 13th, the morning that Dave Krupa left Carrie sitting with her laptop on his sofa with plans to head into work, somehow Liz was able to get Carrie into her clutches and murder her without anyone hearing or seeing. And her body has still never been found. It would take Years for investigators to pull together a chronology using Carrie's digital footprint from that morning of November 13th. And according to that timeline, Carrie's laptop logged onto Facebook really early that morning, obviously before Dave had left work at 6:30, and then logged off at 6:42 AM. Three hours later, at 9:54, Carrie's cell phone logged into Facebook again, and she unfriended Dave Krupa. But it wasn't Carrie. It was Liz, who was now in control of Carrie's social media accounts, her email, laptop, cell phone. She even had her vehicle and house keys. So 20 minutes later, Dave received a text from Carrie asking if he wanted to move in together. His response was quick. No. Then Carrie, which was actually Liz, fired back. Fine. Fuck you. I'm seeing somebody else. Don't contact me again. I hate you. Go away. You can imagine Dave was dumbstruck as he read the text. He couldn't believe that Carrie would do this. And as the day progressed, he continued to feel the sting of her rejection. But he also faced the hard truth. He really had only known Carrie for a couple of weeks. He didn't try to contact Carrie again. He was disappointed that their romance had so abruptly ended. Here's Tay, a longtime friend of Dave's, who sort of explains his philosophy on life.
1: He's just a guy. He wants to do guy things and have fun. And, and if somebody's with him, great. If they're not, he doesn't care. It goes been straightforward saying with these women that he was not interested in full-term, long-term relationship. He just wasn't interested in that.
0: You'll hear more from Tay in a bit. She, too, was roped into Liz's twisted web of deception, jealousy, and murder. What Dave didn't know when he accepted Carrie's rejection text that morning, at face value, was that she didn't show up for work that day. In fact, she'd emailed her boss a resignation letter, informing her supervisor that she was moving to Kansas for a new job. Carrie's mom, Nancy, also received a strange text from her daughter that was inexplicable. She said she was just taking a new job. Now remember, Carrie's son, Max, had stayed the night with his grandparents the previous evening. There was no other text after that, and Carrie's mom was trying to understand what the text meant. And as they pondered what was going on with Carrie, they didn't spend any time paying attention to her Facebook page. They didn't see that she, it was of course Liz, had posted a comment in her graffiti post. The one where she posted a pic of her SUV, saying it had been vandalized. Carrie's new comment explained it had just been kids.
1: Liz? followed people around. She obviously followed him to Carrie's house. She she ended up in Carrie's yard vandalizing her car a few days before Carrie disappeared.
0: Carrie's mom, Nancy, was deeply troubled. After two days with no word from Carrie, Nancy knew something horrible had happened. There was just no way that she would leave Max.
1: All of these people were stunned when Carrie was suddenly gone from their life. And they didn't know what to think. Each of them would get messages via emails or texts that appeared to be from Carrie. So they were confused. For a while, they believed that it really was Carrie reaching out to them. And they were hurt because they didn't know why she had so abruptly left their lives.
0: When Carrie didn't show up for a wedding and then a baby shower, Nancy called the Pottawatomie County Sheriff's Office. It had been three days since Carrie had disappeared. When the deputy who came to Nancy's house arrived, he didn't share her gut-wrenching mother's intuition that something bad had happened to her daughter. The reality is an adult has the right to walk away from their life. Unless there is evidence of foul play or it's a missing child, the only thing law enforcement can do is file a missing persons report. And so Carrie Farver's details were entered into the National Crime Information Center, along with over 600,000 other missing persons reports that were registered in 2012. The Pottawatomie County Sheriff's Office response to Carrie being physically missing, although clearly digitally present, with her strange texts and emails was not misplaced. In 2012, of the more than 660,000 people that were reported missing in the U.S., by the end of the year, all but around 2,000 eventually showed up. Meantime, across the bridge in Nebraska, Carrie was becoming a menace, obsessively texting and emailing Dave Krupa. According to Carrie, Liz was to blame for breaking them up.
1: When Dave received countless messages from the stalker every day on his phone, even when he changed his number, he was really discouraged. The whole thing exhausted him. He did everything he could to get the stalker out of his life, but she wouldn't let go. And he couldn't understand why every single time he would change his phone number, the stalker would somehow get it almost immediately. He was giving his number to just a few people close to him. Liz had it, of course, and Amy and his children and his parents and his boss couldn't understand how the stalker could have gotten it. Now, of course, Liz was the stalker, so she always had his phone, no no matter when he changed it. Dave couldn't understand why the police couldn't catch the stalker. Uh, Countless times, rocks flew through his window in his apartment building, and he became used to it. He found himself drinking more than usual. He hadn't been a heavy drinker before, uh, but to escape the the stress, he would drink a, a little bit more than he needed to and he also gained weight, and he wasn't sleeping as well. He was absolutely miserable, but he was resigned to the fact the stalker was part of his life. It went on for years, and he never got a moment's peace. The stalker sent over 20,000
0: emails and texts over a three-year period. Liz also made herself the target of Carrie's expletive-laced messages and emails from Crazy Carrie, as she called her. Before, she had sex as her tool to manipulate. Now, she used Dave's guilt. Hey, look what I'm enduring because of you. She went so far as to even vandalize her own garage and spray paint whore from Dave on the wall. Of course, all of this was blamed on Carrie. Carrie
1: and she played the damsel in distress. And it worked, because Dave's a nice guy. And though he wanted to break away from her and just completely end his relationship, every time he tried to do that, the stalker would do something to Liz that would cause him to come running back to help her. For instance, the stalker set fire to Liz's house, according to Liz. It was actually Liz, of course, who did that. She would vandalize her garage she would paint graffiti on her own walls she would get horrible threatening texts and show them to dave and she was a really good actress so she would appear to be very upset about this her manipulation worked and she also used sex to manipulate him he was a healthy young man in his 30s and she knew it and she used sex whenever she could
0: to get him to come around to her way of thinking Dave and Liz were now meeting regularly to talk about how to handle his crazy ex. Liz also contacted the Omaha police. Remember, she lived close to Dave in Nebraska, and so she filed a police report there, pointing the finger at Carrie Farver for stalking, vandalizing, and theft. Liz claimed that an old checkbook had gone missing from the garage. Now, this is a little bit confusing, but it's important. What Omaha police didn't know was that Liz impersonating Carrie, had texted Nancy an image of one of Liz's stolen checks in the amount of $5,000, saying that she'd sold her bedroom furniture to a woman named Liz Gallier, who would be picking it up. Now, at this time, Nancy had no idea who Liz Gollier was. She didn't even really know who Dave Krupa was, let alone his twisted relationship with Liz. But by this time, she was more than suspicious of the person texting her. She didn't believe it was her daughter. And so Nancy gave the texter an ultimatum. If she wanted her to let this Liz Gollier into Carrie's house to pick up the furniture, Carrie would have to call her so she could verify her daughter's voice.
1: Eventually, they came to realize it couldn't possibly be Carrie who was sending them such horrible texts. They went through hell. It was unimaginable because they, they couldn't get answers. They missed Carrie. And not only that, they were being tormented for years. Liz would send Carrie's mother texts on holidays. Mother's Day, she would play games with her, pretending to be Carrie, pretending that she was finally coming home. She was finally going to call her. And of course, Nancy would be, would get her hopes up. Even though Nancy, some part of her would think, this isn't Carrie writing to me, because it didn't really sound like her. Some part of her would have hope. Her hopes would surge and she'd think, I'm then going to get my daughter back. And then there would just be silence. There would be nothing for weeks, for months. It was a really cruel game.
0: Of course, Carrie couldn't call her mother. But Liz went off on Nancy, saying that she was a horrible, controlling mother. It was just another one of her cruel games. Nancy did call the Pottawatomie County Sheriff's Office again with this new information. This time, a detective came and they met at Carrie's home. And as the detective poked around, he asked Nancy to forward the image of that check to him. And at the same time, Nancy shared her concern that Carrie hadn't taken her medication.
1: Carrie suffered from depression and very bad anxiety at times. And one doctor had actually diagnosed her as bipolar and she was on medication she'd been doing really well. But when she vanished, uh, her mother, Nancy, told the detective that Carrie had the issues with the depression and anxiety. And he immediately jumped to the conclusion that Carrie had left on her own because she'd had a breakdown. Uh, she left her medication behind. And he said, well, that, we see that kind of thing all the time. People stop taking their medicine and they flip out. And her mother wanted to believe that was true. She knew in the back of her mind it wasn't true because Carrie had never uh, done anything irrational. Yes, she had been bad anxiety, but she never acted crazy. But she hoped that maybe that's what was going on because the alternative was so horrible.
0: More murder chronicles after the break. Nothing made sense to Nancy. She wondered if Carrie's ex, the guy that she'd had to get a restraining order against, had something to do with this. And what about this new guy that Carrie had stayed the night with in Omaha, Dave? Could he be behind her disappearance? One of the many tragedies in Carrie's missing persons case was that they hadn't been dating long enough for Dave and Nancy to meet, let alone exchange contact information or even last names. And as Carrie's family suffered with worry and fear... They had no idea that Dave, Liz, and many others were receiving a deluge of nasty texts and emails from Carrie. It's worth mentioning that at no point in the over three years of the constant threats that Dave endured, did he ever suspect Liz of being the stalker.
1: Liv set the app on Letter Me Later so that she and Dave would get threatening texts at the same time. And she'd be hanging out in his apartment, her purse would be across the room, and all of a sudden she'd get an alert and Dave was right there with her. And he would see her, get her phone, look at the message, and he noted the shocked expression on her face. She looked really traumatized. And he would usually get a message at the same time. And he told me that this was the reason he was convinced. That Liz was not the stalker. It didn't occur to him that she could be because she was with him when she got those stats.
0: Liz was so brazen that she even allowed investigators who were working the case against Carrie Farver in Nebraska to download the information on her phone. They had no reason not to believe that she was the victim, which is why they weren't looking for deleted content on her cell phone. Meantime, Liz had been able to move the commitment needle with Dave. She got him to at least commit to every Wednesday night as their date night. Dave had no idea that he was becoming a victim of Liz's coercive control.
1: She had his attention during that time, but afterward, he was bored with her. He found her to be not very articulate, not witty. She had no idea about what was going on with current events, the time that Dave spent with Liz was mostly talking about the stalker, the horrible things the stalker had done, what the stalker might do next, what they could do to catch and stop the stalker. He was pretty uh, down because he thought, there's got to be more to life than this. It's all we ever do is talk about the stalker. And he grew very tired of it. But it seemed that Liz was his most loyal friend. All the other females in his life had been scared away when they received threats. They weren't sticking around. They weren't coming to see him. They were terrified. But here was Liz, who was so loyal to him, and she seemed so terrified too. And he thought, wow, she's really sticking by me. She's a good friend. He had no idea, of course, that she was the stalker, and that's why she wasn't afraid.
0: But all the stress of being the object of a stalker was overwhelming for Dave. It was constant. And the stalker took pleasure in flexing her manipulative powers and control when she sent texts that she was everywhere. One evening, Dave was at his home watching TV when he received this text. I see you in the chair with your feet propped up. You're wearing your blue t-shirt. Liz's web of lies revolved around apps that allowed her to conceal her identity, even to police. She also had to know that two separate law enforcement agencies in two different states were conducting two very different investigations. The Pottawatomie County Sheriff's Office in Iowa was working Carrie Farver's missing persons case, while the Omaha, Nebraska police were investigating the stalking, vandalism and check theft that had been reported by Liz and, of course, Dave's stalking reports against Carrie Farver. But Iowa police did make some progress in Carrie's missing persons case. Carrie's cell phone records revealed that her phone was pinging off towers in Omaha, you know, across the bridge. And so they checked the area, which was a combination of residential and businesses, but they didn't find Carrie or her black Ford Explorer. One curious thing, though, the detective noted that when he looked up the name on the check that was written out to Carrie that Nancy had given to him, you know, about the furniture that she'd sold for $5,000, it was a starter check from Shanna Gollier, a.k.a. Liz Gollier. And Liz's address was in the same vicinity as Carrie's cell phone pings. So the detectives visited the address on the check and left a card for Liz to call. At the time, they had no idea that Liz was dating the same man that Carrie was when she disappeared, Liz used this opportunity to continue painting herself the victim of Carrie Farver, who she said blamed her for breaking up their relationship. She told the Iowa detectives that Carrie was behind the stalking, vandalism, and threats. She gave them Dave's contact information, and they visited him at the tire store, where he corroborated what Liz was saying, showing them his own texts and emails. Again, Occam's razor theory. Remember, the simplest answer is the right answer. But not always. Not in this case. I mean, it's understandable that the Iowa detectives looking into this were like, it's unlikely that anyone other than Carrie had her phone, although it was possible. Who would do such a thing? The more likely scenario was a love triangle and Carrie was the scorned woman. One thing though, this was the first time that Dave was made aware that Carrie had been reported missing. Those Iowa detectives had barely left the tire store when one of them received a text from Carrie saying, quote, I don't care about this missing persons report, but I would really appreciate it if you would leave Dave Krupa out of it. I will be leaving the state. My mother overreacted. I have been to my house a few times. That text did its job. It was from Carrie's phone. It confirmed what the detectives had also gleaned from Carrie's employer. Remember, Carrie had sent a text saying she was moving to Kansas to take another job. Everything seemed to go back to the premise that Carrie was free to leave her life, no questions asked. And the investigation on the other side of the river in Omaha, Nebraska, the one that was prompted by Dave and Liz based on the stalking, check theft, and vandalism, that was pretty much at a standstill, too. I mean, in their minds, it wasn't like anybody had died or anything. And that's the sad fact, was that someone had died these two law enforcement agencies can't be blamed for not putting the pieces of Liz's twisted and complex crimes which would ultimately take thousands of hours to wade through to get to the truth it's worth noting that even seasoned detectives who were innately suspicious weren't prepared for someone like Liz her intensity to do anything including murder to wipe out any woman that got in the way of her relationship with Dave. It just had no limits. Even women who weren't interested in Dave romantically became targets. Like Dave's lifelong platonic friend, who I mentioned earlier, Tay. Now, Tandy Braver or Tay became a target of Liz because the woman couldn't believe that they were just friends.
1: I don't even really know how to describe her. She was an average Burnett, she seemed nice enough. Like I said, it was a really quick meeting the first time, but uh, she seemed
0: okay. You can hear the frustration in Tay's voice. It's been a decade since this happened, but when I spoke to Tay and her husband, David, it was still so fresh the inconceivable hell that they'd endured. And as I was talking to Tay, who I was scheduled to be interviewing, David couldn't help himself chiming in. The experience had shaken them both to their core. Part of that was because they didn't perceive Liz as a threat. Tay and David lived near Dave Krupa's parents, a few hours away from Omaha. When Dave was planning a weekend to visit his parents, Liz invited herself along, and Dave agreed. He made a pit stop at Tay and David's home, and this is where they first met Liz.
1: I was trying to be polite. She uh, was a really quick, hi, how are you, blah, 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 and then they they left. But uh, the first meeting was she was just kind of um, she wasn't standoffish, but she was kind of, I don't even really know how to describe her. Didn't really even figure that I would see her again. To be honest, I, she was just a Wednesday girl.
0: As Liz and Dave were saying their goodbyes, Tay added something like, hey, you're welcome back anytime. She was being polite. Never in a million years did she think Liz would take her up on it. After that weekend, Liz started texting Tay, which led to her awkwardly inviting herself back to Tay's place for a girl's weekend. Tay was like a deer in headlights. She felt pushed into a corner, and she did what many of us do when someone has overstepped into our comfort zones. She appeased Liz. So when Liz showed up for that girl's weekend and realized that Tay wasn't going out on the town partying with her, she was really mad. But then she wanted to go see Dave's parents, who lived nearby.
1: We actually went over and talked with parents, and that was so fucked up. Because she started talking about guns and Carrie and basically sounding out the alarm that Tom and Trish should, you know, help do something about this Carrie problem and how concerned she was about it. And that's all she talked about. And then she was getting um, texts while we were there from Carrie that this Carrie girl doesn't give up. Like, she's supposedly missing, but nobody can find this girl. And she's... Vandalizing things and keying cars and setting things on fire and and killing animals and I mean it was wow I mean throwing bricks through windows and nobody can find her.
0: During that weekend visit, Tay and David got a real bird's eye look into Liz's obsession with Dave.
1: But the thing that I noticed about her is that all she liked to do was talk about Dave the whole time she was here. Dave, Dave, Dave. Why does Dave want me? How can, you know, how can he pass up on this? You know, and then just Dave, Dave, Dave. That's all it was. Anybody else that might be involved with Dave, that's all she was focused on.
0: The sleeping arrangements that night would fuel Tay's nightmares for years to come.
1: I gave her some choices. I said, I can either put you up on the couch or I can put you downstairs with me. It's in a bed. I'll stay to my side. You know, David is down there gaming and, you know, hopefully that doesn't bother you, but, you know, that's what we can do for accommodations. And she said that was fine. So we went downstairs and she was really upset that we didn't go drinking. Now, when you're thinking about this, hindsight, I hate to be paranoid, but had my husband worked that weekend, Had my father-in-law not been living here, my daughter was gone. She wants to go out drinking, get you inebriated, bring you back, and then what happens? Like, the way she was looking at me, I was on the whore list. She swore up and down that there is no way, well, Carrie said there was no way that Koopa and I could be friends. She called everybody whores. Everybody was a whore. That was her favorite word, I'm pretty sure. (laughs) I rolled over and she was just eyeballing me. You ever had that feeling where eyes are boring through the back of your head? I didn't want to be creeped out, but I was creeped out. And I think that if she had, uh, my father-in-law lived with us then and my husband had the weekends off. And I think if she had had her way, things would have been a little different. I don't think she was planning on my husband or my father-in-law to be here. So I kind of ripped the rug out from under her.
0: After Liz's weekend stay, Tay began receiving texts and emails from Carrie Farver. Eventually, the stalker upped the ante by hacking into Dave Krupa's email account, where she sent a video of Dave and Liz having sex. And
1: I'm laying there bed one night, and I, I'm going through my email, and there's this email there from Krupa. And I'm like, oh, well, that's weird, because he doesn't really send emails. So I open it up, and it's this porn video, I called Cooper and said, what the fuck, dude? Why are you sending me shit like that? I was kind this." Of and he said, that wasn't me. She's into my emails and she's sending out
0: emails to everybody I know, all the women. Of course, everyone believed that the person responsible for sending the sex video was Carrie, and of course Liz continued playing the victim. But it was even darker than that. David, Tay's husband, brought up a really astute read of the situation because Liz sent that sex video to all of Dave Krupa's contacts, not just Tay's. So in addition to playing the victim card with Dave, sending the porn video of her having sex with him was a way for her to show every woman in his life, including Tay, that he was her man. Everything Liz did from murdering Carrie to assuming
1: her identity to sending stuff to my wife, it was all because she was obsessed with Dave. She wanted Dave. She wanted all the women to back away. She had a list of um, yes, yes, of, yes. of women who she thought was involved with Dave and was and was doing stuff to drive them away from Dave. That's all she cared about was Dave. She didn't care how she had to do it. She, she was going to get her man one way or the other. Yeah, absolutely.
0: But the sex video was just the beginning of an onslaught of texts and emails from Carrie. We
1: just expected that you're gonna open your email and there's gonna be a hundred emails there from her telling you you're a, a whore and you should you should get the hell away from Cooper before she kills you and yeah, another another day it happened for so long that you just I kinda of understand why he just tried not to think about it.
0: Being the source of the stalker's threats set Tay on edge for years. I was a little
1: paranoid. I'm not going to lie. I was a little paranoid. I mean, I just couldn't understand how this ghost of a person couldn't be caught. I even called the Omaha police and I called the police here.
0: Because I'm like, I mean, they were like, well, we don't know what to tell you. She hasn't done anything. She was filled with an all-consuming fear and paranoia of this unseen entity whose threats were becoming more and more violent. But the situation would be coming to a head soon. During the three years that Liz played the victim of the stalker, she would call the police often, stressed out and crying, complaining about her victimization at the hands of Carrie Farver. Why couldn't they catch her? She had offered up her phone for them to download. They had all the evidence of Carrie's abusive texts and emails where she openly admitted to the vandalism, check theft, even the arson at Liz's house, and admitting that she'd intentionally killed Liz's pets in the blaze. But all of Liz's cruelties were about to be exposed when Amy, Dave's ex, became her obsession. On December 5th, 2015, at 6.41 p.m., Liz called 911. She was whimpering. She'd been shot in the leg. She'd been walking around Big Lake Park in Council Bluffs, Iowa. The gunshot wound was a through and through. And later, from her hospital bed, Liz claimed she'd been taking a walk when a shadowy figure approached her, demanding she get on the ground. Liz complied, only to be fired at multiple times. She was hit in the leg during the barrage of bullets. Liz would tell police that she thought the shooter was Amy, Dave Krupa's ex.
1: Amy was very lucky that she survived this because she was in the in the crosshairs of Liz's hate. Liz was stalking Amy, and the detectives believe that she had a plan to kill Amy. She suddenly shifted her story. Uh, Liz began to say that she didn't think it was Carrie stalking her, but it was Amy, and she told the detectives, "I think it was Amy all along."
0: It didn't take long for detectives to clear Amy, but they had no proof that Liz was lying or that she shot herself. But her story wasn't adding up. At this point, investigators began talking to each other from these different jurisdictions, and that's when they started piecing together that their individual cases were connected and that Liz Gollier was at the center. Now, Instead of Carrie Farver being the stalker, Liz was accusing Amy not only of shooting her, but also of killing Carrie Farver. Liz believed Amy was the stalker. And it's here that the tables would turn. Detectives keyed into Liz's hatred and jealousy of Amy, and her hubris allowed Liz to crawl right into the psychological trap that detectives were setting. Investigators suggested to Dave that he should move into Amy's house to protect her and the kids that she was in danger of Liz Gallier, And that was true. Amy was in danger from Liz. But police already had her under surveillance. And they'd put a tracker on Liz's car so that it would alert them if she came anywhere near Amy's home. Dave, moving back in with Amy, they were hoping was the thing that would push Liz over the edge. On February 1st, 2016, Liz called the detective working her shooting case in a rager, Through tears, she blurted, looks like the only person that benefited was her. So she gets to shoot somebody, and then she gets to kill another person, and then she gets to move in with Dave, and she gets to be free, and you guys aren't arresting her? The detectives were playing Liz like a fiddle. They responded with, we can't arrest Amy for Carrie's murder unless we have more specific information. The
1: detectives were much smarter than Liz gave them credit for. When Liz went to the detectives and told them that Amy had shot her and that Amy was the stalker, they pretended they believed her. And when Liz demanded that they arrest Amy, they said, well, gosh, we don't have enough evidence. If only we had something a threat from Amy or an email that came from her that would with details, then maybe we could arrest her. So what does Liz do? Exactly what the detectives were hoping she would do. She went home and she created a phoney email address for Amy and began to send herself email threats from this new email address and made it appear as if Amy was sending threats and that Amy was confessing to shooting Liz in Big Lake Park. Well, the detectives looked at that and they knew that Liz had stepped right into their, to their trap, but they weren't looking for information about the shooting at Big Lake Park. They were looking for information about Carrie's murder, and so they told Liz that they said, "Well, the big like Park shooting wasn't in our jurisdiction. We're the sheriff's department, and we're we're investigating the homicide of Carrie Farber. In order to arrest Amy, we need evidence that Amy was the person who killed Carrie. And so, what happens all of a sudden?" Liz appears to be getting emails from Amy confessing to Carrie's murder. Of course, Amy was a very innocent person and she was never around in her life. Amy wasn't sending those emails and the detectives knew that from the start. The detectives had set a trap. Liz was doing exactly what they wanted her to do. She was writing confessions about Carrie's murder and giving details that only the killer would know. They never thought for one
0: second that those emails were coming from Amy. Liz was at the station offering up her Google account password so police could track Amy's confession emails that were coming to her in real time. They were proof that Amy needed to be arrested immediately. These emails were often rambling, but they had a common theme. And what investigators believed were some kernels of truth. By this time, there was no doubt that they believed Liz had murdered Carrie Farver. But without a body or any physical evidence, how could they prove it? And so they went through these Amy emails with a fine-tooth comb, and they realized that they believed that there was some truth there. For example, many of the emails had the same information, that Carrie was stabbed in the chest or the stomach area, that the incident happened in her vehicle, the body was burned, It was disposed of in the garbage, the vehicle was cleaned out after the fact, and that she went to Carrie's residence and took some of her possessions. Investigators theorized that the murder most likely occurred in Omaha, Nebraska, because of Carrie's phone pings on the day of the murder. When the Iowa team brought the Carrie Farver homicide case to Nebraska, the cold case detective was impressed. And so they worked together to plan their next moves. They believe the murder took place in Carrie's vehicle and that she was stabbed. At some point during this three years, Carrie's SUV had been found, and it had already been processed twice by a forensic team. The second time, they'd found one fingerprint, but the print wasn't in the database. But now that they had Liz in their sights, they compared it to her, and it matched. And so they went over the SUV for a third time, But this time, believing that Carrie had been stabbed in the passenger seat of her own vehicle, they removed the seat cover and sprayed luminol, and slowly, it began to light up. It was clear that somebody had lost a lot of blood in that spot. Further tests would prove that the blood belonged to Carrie. Four days later, investigators were granted a search warrant for Liz's apartment, where they found Carrie's camera and camcorder.
1: We do not know exactly how the scenario unfolded the day that Carrie disappeared. All we know is that Carrie died, but we have no idea how that came about. We don't know if Liz took her by by gunpoint from Dave's apartment. We don't know if Liz knocked on the door and pretended that she was sick and that she needed a ride home, and Carrie being the kind-hearted person that she was, would have offered to give her a ride. We don't know. And we also don't know when Liz went into Carrie's house and took some of her possessions. We just know that those possessions were found a few years later in Liz's apartment after the detectives got a search warrant to look for things.
0: Liz was arrested for the murder of Carrie Farver in February of 2016. The location data on Carrie's phone put her at Liz's house the day she went missing. The emails and texts had been pinpointed to Liz's address, and Amy Flora's confession emails came from Liz's own IP address. There was an empty SD card that belonged to Liz. She had deleted a bunch of photos, and that's where they found the gruesome image of a decomposing human foot with a tattoo. Investigators were gobsmacked when they realized that the tattoo was a Chinese symbol for mother and that Carrie Farver had that same tattoo on her foot.
1: Carrie had a number of different tattoos. That was the one on her foot, which was uh, the um, crucial evidence in convicting Liz.
0: Without recovering Carrie's body, that image was the final piece of physical evidence that prosecutors needed to move forward A judge found Liz guilty of the first-degree murder of Carrie Farver. Liz was sentenced to a life in prison without the possibility of parole. Now, Leslie Rule would exchange letters with Liz when she was researching her book, and Liz responded to her with a four-page letter, essentially saying she was innocent and that, quote, the real killer is out there. This case is such a tragedy, and I can't even begin to imagine what Carrie's family has gone through. But also the guilt that Dave carries. I mean, he's a victim in this, too. It's a burden that he will have to live with every day for the rest of his life.
1: He blames himself because he didn't realize that Carrie was perfectly innocent and that Liz was the true culprit. And he was mad at himself because she convinced him of things that weren't true. When Dave and I spoke, a few years had passed since Carrie's death, uh, but he had a burden, and I think I'll have it for the rest of his life.
0: I want to leave you with the final thought about this case. According to Leslie, Dave Krupa has endured a lot of unfair criticism for what many believe were his lifestyle choices, and that the level of victim-blaming and shaming has added a lot to his already heavy burden of guilt.
1: Dave has been the online target of a lot of criticism. And people don't realize what it's like to be fooled by a sociopath. It's very easy for outsiders to blame Dave when they weren't in his shoes. They know the outcome because they've read the book or seen the TV shows about the case. But Dave didn't have that knowledge when he was in the middle of this he was a victim and he was a really nice guy and I think some people are too critical of him
0: The Murder Chronicles is a Cavalry Audio production recorded live in the beautiful Pacific Northwest. We're produced by Brandon Morgan and myself. Our executive producers are Dana Brunetti and Keegan Rosenberger. Josh Windish edited and mixed this episode. Music by Soundstripe. For Cavalry Audio, I'm Carolyn Osorio, your writer and host. Thanks for listening.